This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Enterprise reporters Noah Zweifel, who covers the Helderberg Hilltowns, and Sean Mulcairin, who covers the town of New Scotland, the villages of Voorheesville and Altamont, and Gilderland Planning and Zoning. Each year during the first week of the new year, the reporters and I sit around a table to take a Janus-based look at our work. Janus, of course, was the Roman god of beginnings and endings. His name comes from the Latin word for doorway or passage. He has two faces, looking to the past and the future at the same time. This year, of course, we cannot gather together, but we're meeting over the phone lines, and we're starting with me talking about our coverage of the coronavirus. COVID-19 has consumed all of us. Here at the Enterprise, we started on the week of March 12th with a front page that had pictures of the Gilderland School play. As it turned out, (laughs) that play never made it to the stage. Much later, we did a podcast with Andy Maycock, who was the director of Gilderland High School English teacher, and he told us about how relatives and friends were coming from out of town to see Chicago, and You know, at the last minute, the plug had to be pulled. Gilderland School District had one of the first two cases of COVID-19. And later, of course, all of the schools were shut down. But it's a perfect example of the resiliency and creativity that we have found throughout this ordeal. We found out from Andy Maycock later that when school resumed in the fall, And all of our schools, including Gilderland, went through massive upheaval and restructuring in order to educate children safely. Um, Desks were put a social distance six feet apart. Um, Remote learning was offered to those parents who wanted their students to stay home. And through this all, he came up with a way to do the fall play. (laughs) They ended up having students write monologues, um, and they were performed by other students and recorded, and you can go online and watch it. It's just an example of the way our community coped throughout this. And the enterprise was there day in and day out to cover it. Starting right from the beginning, um, our March 19th issue had um, the Commissioner of Health, Elizabeth Whalen, urging people to stay home and save lives. And throughout this ordeal, we have counted on the leadership in our county, which has been superb. Daily at first... Um, and now nearly daily again, uh, Dan McCoy, the county executive, has held press conferences. Our um, photographer, Michael Koff, who's a healthy young man and a volunteer firefighter, has um, 
been to every one of those except on days when he has to cover something or deliver papers. And he records them for me because I'm elderly with a lot of health issues. <laughs> and I can write by using my telephone and listening to recordings and cover the news. And our co-publisher, Marcello Yaya, um, who's also the digital editor, has put out every single day, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, the latest news, not just on COVID, but on all of the towns we cover, the Helderberg Hill Towns, New Scotland, and Gilderland. And then what we do is in our weekly print edition, I do a summary of the COVID news so that our print readers who are not online have a way to access what has happened all week long, and they have it right before them in print. So on that very first issue after COVID, we also had Noah Zweifel, our Hilltown reporter, writing about BKW buses delivering to those in need on the Hill. And this is a theme throughout our months, 10 months now of COVID coverage. The community really pitching in and helping in so many different ways. And our newspaper, both online and in print, has been a way of getting those efforts out to the community at large so people can both contribute and benefit from them. We also had a story in that edition by Sean Mulcairin, who um, wrote about local businesses and did an in-depth look at a handful of them, um, the kind of whiplash they faced with this sudden shutdown. And then he followed up back in the reopening era um, just to see how they were doing and how they were coping. So we got an in-person look. We also throughout tried to look at locally how these issues which were affecting the entire state early on New York of course the city was the epicenter of the infection but um, affecting the entire country I did a feature on the Altamont funeral director John Galino and asked people to imagine a funeral where mourners can't hug each other um, there are just all kinds of stories where we got the local personal perspective. Uh, in April, when Easter was on the horizon, um, I wrote about the holiday, the holy day, I guess I should say, from a priest's point of view, Christopher Giovini in St. Matthew's Church in Voorheesville. He said, uh, part of our faith is fasting and walking with Jesus in the desert, separated from the things we love so we can have a better appreciation when we have them. And the virus, he said, is forcing us to a Lenten desert, something none of us would have chosen. It will help to know our hungers for gathering, for resurrection, and a new life. He thought that that Easter would come in the summer, and in some ways it did. There was an opening up. But of course, we are right now into the thickest, heaviest, hardest part with this resurgent, which is fourfold um, what the original peak was in the springtime. And that, of course, was controlled by a 
statewide shutdown, um, now we're relying on the goodwill and good conscience of people who can to stay home and to follow the all-important directives of washing hands, wearing masks, not gathering, and staying six feet apart. In April, uh, Noah's Weefel also wrote about um, medical practices and how they are hurting because people were not going out to see the doctor and how they had turned to telemed visits. I happened to be out for a doctor's appointment and took pictures of abandoned medical (laughs) offices and waiting rooms. It was an eerie, eerie feeling. Michael Koff took excellent pictures of the protests when people were lobbying to open up before the uh, regional reopening plan was put in place. Carol Coogan did just a marvelously power, powerful cartoon at that point to go with an editorial I wrote where the protesters were standing on a coffin. Um, gradually, Uh, The regions met the parameters to open up, and they did. And as I say, we're now back to a point where without those across-the-board shutdowns, it's climbing again. For several months, the state used a micro-cluster approach where the places with the greatest infections were labeled red zones and non-essential businesses and schools closed in those zones. There were also orange zones and yellow zones. Um, The orange zones were seen as warning or buffer zones and the uh, yellow zones as precautionary zones. That was all based on a metric that had to do with the infection rate. Then Governor Andrew Cuomo launched his winter plan, and that plan, um, instead of focusing just on the infection rates, focused on the hospital capacity. So with that shift, the enterprise, we started reporting each day, and you can see these not just in the newsletter that's free and you can get right in your email mailbox, but also on our website every day. Um, We have the latest numbers, and Albany County um, has not been doing well in terms of um, ICU, intensive care unit beds. Our percentage is the lowest available in the state. Uh, yesterday, I think it was 16%. Um, and our hospital bed availability rate is among the worst rates in the state. Um, but just to give you an example of the kinds of things that we cover in now in the new year, yesterday, this week was a Typical week, uh, press conference over the weekend on Saturday. The county executive, Daniel McCoy, caused for a pause in school reopening, coming back from the Christmas break, as the rate of infection was still surging following the Thanksgiving, Christmas holidays with the New Year tallies not yet in. And um, 
We called on Sunday a local school superintendent, Marie Wiles, who filled us in on the conversation she and the other 40-some superintendents across the county had had with Elizabeth Whalen, the health commissioner, and reported on that on Sunday. And then on Monday, the governor announced that counties with an infection rate of 9% of higher, of which Albany County certainly is one, um, would have in-school testing. And it's the governor's opinion. He stressed it was not a fact, but his opinion that kids are safer in school in communities that have the high rates as long as they're tested and the rates in school are lower. So it will be up to the individual school districts to make that choice. And if you get our newspaper, the print edition this week, You won't see each one of those day-by-day stories. You'll see a summary that tells you the situation now. So yesterday was a busy day because in addition to that announcement from the governor that affects us locally on schools being tested in high infection areas like ours, he also announced um, the rollout of the vaccine, new details on that. And we combined that with what the county health commissioner had to say. She, along with the other eight county health commissioners, are working with Albany Medical Center, which is the hub for our region. And uh, Dr. Whalen feels it's going well, and they're expecting their first shipment this week. And if you go to the county website or Albany Med website, you can see the different tiers and the way in which it's being administered. Um, And there's also a new app that was announced yesterday where you can sign up to see if you're eligible for a vaccination in one of those categories and find out more. And then there was a last-minute phone call conversation with the governor that I dialed into on the new strain from the United Kingdom arriving in New York. The first case in New York was announced yesterday by Governor Cuomo. It was a jeweler at a jewelry store in Saratoga Springs. And this variant is not more severe. The symptoms aren't any worse. It is not more deadly. But it is highly transmissible, about 70% more than the former strain that was in our country. So that, of course, was another news story. Um, Another function, I'd just like to close out my segment here on covering COVID. We love to answer readers' questions. So many people have concerns or don't understand something, and we will try to get answers for you. We got a letter this week from someone named Mary Private who had read the story, I think it was Saturday, that was posted on the county executive saying, see your private doctor and sign up. And she wrote us, I don't have a private doctor. So we put an editor's note with an answer about the new online sign-up, as well as what category of people are now being eligible. So please, if you have questions, we will try to find answers. So now we are turning to Sean Mulcairin, who has for over three years, covered the town of New Scotland, which is at a kind of a crossroads between rural and suburban, the villages of Voorheesville and Altamont, 
and this year has taken on the Herculean task of also covering planning and zoning in the town of Gilderland, which is just bursting with news. So welcome, Sean. And what can you tell us about the most important stories you worked on this year, 2020, this year past? Well, I would say in the two villages, we have we have two stories of stewards with wildly different outcomes. We have, they were both five years in the making. In the village of Voorheesville, we saw a shop never get built while in Altamont after five years of repeatedly coming before boards and a lawsuit. A shop now stands on the corner of Altamont Boulevard. Um, so in June of this year, the Altamont Planning Board, finally, after five years, when it first came before the board, they approved the special use permit for stewards to build the building. Um, the company replaced its small-ish 2,700 square foot with a 3,400 square foot shop. Um, the That was, you know... Something, you know, that, around that time, that's when it kind of was getting contentious in the village, if you remember. That's when I think Ed Cowley was writing letters to the editor and people were getting really upset with what was going on with that angle, which was, you know, something that's not often seen, especially in Altamont. Um, but Stewart's, you know, their first attempt to build came back in 2015. The village board actually, in a two, two vote, ended up not giving them the zoning change they needed. So that expansion failed. Three years later, they came before the board again in 2018, looking for the same rezone. Again, when the board voted to give them the rezone that time, however, just a few months later, the village was sued by a group of um, residents looking to overturn the uh, results. Um, but by November 2019, the lawsuit basically was, was rendered moot because the village board basically went back and redid the entire zoning process again to comply with the state law. Um, throughout it all, it got to the point where even village residents were submitting their own plans for stewards. Uh, Omni County Legislator Jeff Purley and a few others actually submitted their own um, rendering to the planning board for what they felt the steward shop should look like. Um, but like the cell phone tower a few years ago, where people were up in arms, this too shall pass. Um, there hasn't been much of an uproar since. Uh, over in the village of Voorheesville, um, a much different outcome we saw uh, in September of 2019, Stewart's actually announced that for the first time in its history, it was suing a municipality claiming that it had been targeted from preventing, uh, preventing from building a shop on its own property. Uh, basically what the company was trying to do was have the, villages zoning code which it adopted 
just uh, in uh, May of that year, May, yeah, May of 2019, they wanted to have that tossed so that they could basically have the zoning, they could have a project that they wanted. Um, November of this year, um, basically the, the lawsuit kind of sat quiet for almost a year um, between filings. Um, in November of this year, the judge in the case finally tossed the suit, um, arguing, s stating that um, the village code was reasonable. Uh, it related to legitimate gov interest, government interests, uh, and Stewart in its court filing had failed to establish that the zoning code was arbitrary, capricious, unconstitutional. Um, and the company had failed to identify a single procedural error made by the village of Voorheesville. On the lawsuits. What, one thing that struck me, as you were saying, Altamont was so divided, and there was a village election in the midst of it all, where it was really, really close. And the key issue seemed to be Stewart's. In Voorheesville, do you have any sense of whether most of the village is feeling relief now or happy or do you have any sense of how that uh, judge's decision in tossing the steward suit has played out in terms of village response it seems a lot more quiet i mean i think that people are a lot happier with how things are i mean i think it's like anything the loudest voices are the ones you hear the most so Right. Well, Voorheesville went, went through a whole pl elaborate planning process, which the judge relied on in making his decision. So maybe people felt invested, do you think, in that, in that planning process that culminated in... Yeah. And that was, it was, a multi, that was also a multi-year process where they got a lot of feedback because I think that they learned from the... 2017 St. Matt's kind of debacle where they tried to push through that planned unit development and they got immediate pushback. So I think that they kind of learned from their error that way. And they had quite a few public hearings where they tried to get as many people to voice their input on the comprehensive plan as possible. Um, in the public hearings I sat in, I'm, I rarely heard people voice hard opinions against other than um, the general counsel like Ginley of Stewart's who said that he was could, probably going to sue if they adopted mm -hmm. it. Um, but I mean, that was to be expected. Other than that, it was a, but then again, it goes to the type of people who show up at the meetings. They're the ones who are invested and want to see, development happen in a certain way. So they are probably in favor of it. Right. Well, the, the investment issue, I think, is important because Altamont, too, went through a master planning process, but it was kind of in the rearview mirror. And the person who was so active in that, Dean Whalen, the trustee, I think is the one person that still voted against um, the Stewart's plan. So he apparently still felt invested in, in that original plan. He was, he voted against it twice. Um, actually, it was John Scally. He was the one who flipped 
because they actually, if I remember correctly, the board actually needed a super majority on the vote right. to pass it because of, uh, I think the residents filed, um, I forget the, I forget the, uh, the legal term, the residents filed something where a super majority was right. needed in order to pass Well, thank you for that fascinating analysis tale of two stewards. Now, can we hear something about Gilderland planning and zoning? Yeah, the, I mean, what I've kind of, all things Crossgates has kind of been something I've been covering for the past almost nine months now. I mean, the big thing is the group of residents uh, who were able to stop the construction of the Rap Road development and the Costco, um, the Costco store um, in, when was it? Was it November? Yeah, it was in November. Uh, Judge Peter Lynch, he handed down his decision uh, against the uh, Gilderland Planning Board, uh, basically castigating them for doing just a really bad job at their job for not being a very, I don't want to say not being a very good planning board. They didn't do their due diligence and he was, he went through chapter and verse and he in the words of uh, one of the people I spoke with, you know, he dotted his eyes, he crossed his T's in a way that the uh, it should hold up on appeal, which subsequently actually happened just last month. The town and pyramid filed an appeal looking to overturn um, uh, Lynch's decision. Um, he, in his November 20th decision, his issue was whether the Good Employing Board had complied with the state's Environmental Quality Review Act, and he said that they did not. Um, the board did not identify the areas of environmental concern, did not analyze the areas of concern to determine if the action would have a significant adverse impact. Um, and it did not support its determination with evidence, according to him. Um, he went on to say that actually James Bacon, the the, um, the attorney for the Hearts, McDonald's, and um, Mr. Kaplan, the owner of Red, no longer going to Red Cap, he made the point to me that um, Judge Lynch um, in his decision was mindful of his role in looking at the project, that the role of the court was not to substitute its own judgment for that of the planning board, which, as we know, was what Pyramid is trying to file its appeal on. Um, the 77-page decision, which is something we've heard repeatedly in a number of places, uh, he went through pointing out 
a number of places where the planning board failed to, you know, comply with seeker review. Uh, for example, the, um, the planning board had the authority to review site plans for each of the three sites. Pyramid was proposing to develop three sites, although two sites were actually going to get projects. Um, however, the zoning board had the sole responsibility of issuing the special use permit for Costco. Um, but the planning board never actually decided, never undertook the coordinated review process, which it was supposed to do under seeker. Um, Lynch wrote that the zoning board was simply left out of the process. Um, he wrote that the, um, it was a blatant material procedural failure, which undermined the integrity of the environmental review. Uh, he also said that another part of the one of the other parts that is required of seeker is actual alternatives, which were not offered up by pyramid which offered a maximum built-in area nowhere in the record he said was there evidence of scaled down alternatives and he did very the company he claimed did very little to try and preserve the historic wraparound district yes it was quite a stunning decision i don't know we're sort of running out of time but do you also just want to comment since you do cover all things crossgates as you said the unusual circumstance where not only is pyramid working together with the town to um try to appeal this decision at the same time the town is at odds with crossgates over its assessment. Could you just kind of close us out with that that little interesting <laughs> side note? So the the three limited liability corporations that make up Crossgates Mall are suing the uh, town of Gilderland in an attempt to cut its tax assessment in almost half uh, a move that will basically save it about $7 million, I believe, a year in property taxes. You know, I think that when you're talking about money, I think, you know, any shrewd businessman will tell you it doesn't matter. When you're talking, when you're messing with people's money, it's you know, uh, to mix my metaphors, you know, politics makes for strange bedfellows <laughs> where, you know. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? It's really been strange. And we look forward to your continued coverage on these and other all things Crossgates issues. It's certainly a centerpiece, not just for the town, but for the county in terms of tax revenues and um, the, you know, situation with the COVID-19 has, has made it all the more of an important focus. So thank you, Sean. 
We are now turning to our Hilltown reporter, Noah Zwiefel, who has been assiduously covering the Hilltowns for well over a year. And just last week, we were so gratified to find that the New York Coalition for Open Government issued a report calling on the Burntown Board to provide information to the public. And this report was inspired by the coverage that NOAA has been doing for a year. So, NOAA, tell us about your your most interesting stories of the year. Uh, well, so most interesting, I think one of the top would be um, the Black Lives Matter activity uh, in the Hilltowns this summer, um, which was interesting both for its you know, place in the um, culture at large, but also because I really didn't think when those protests were starting um, in early June that um, they would intersect with the rural white community that I cover. But um, communities like the Hilltowns um, across the country were playing a much larger role uh, than they had in in, um, previous periods of, of racial unrest. Um, and I think that it's the first time, arguably, that uh, some people in the Hilltowns were confronted with the ideas of racism, and now um, a lot of their perspectives are covered in a series of articles. Um, and I think that anytime race is brought up in the Hilltowns again, um, those summer months will serve as kind of a touchstone for any story that comes about. Yes, it was interesting to see that unfold on our letters pages as well as being kind of interlocked. As you would write a story, we would get responses. And then you'd write a further story, and it continued on past the demonstrations into town board discussions like in Rensselaerville, where um, there were some individuals that thought, a Confederate flag was inappropriate and that the town board should say so. It's, it's had a resonance that goes beyond just the, the protests that you cover. Yeah, and um, just from my perspective, it was difficult to cover because it's one of the few times where you get a story that's not really metric-based. I mean, um, race and racism can be quantified, but it's harder in the Hilltowns where um, race isn't a primary issue um but in this case was very relevant um and going into the world and trying to figure out the best way to cover that story without um this kind of objective data that journalists you know usually use to guide them to the reporting um i mean obviously we were called biased a number of times and people were upset about the way um stories were reported um, and I, so I thought it was just interesting from a, um, the perspective of, you know, being the author. Yes. Yes, that is interesting. So what, what were other top stories that we should talk about? Well, as you mentioned, um, in Bern, lots of uh, activity around the new GOP-backed administration. Um, for those who don't know, there's uh, four Republican-backed town board members two of whom were just elected last November, replacing 
two um, Democrat council members who hadn't um, run for re-election, um, leaving Joel Wilsey, the only Democrat on the board, um, and they hit the ground running on January 1st last year. They made a slew of changes. Um, it's too many to remember off the top of my head, but, you know, they replaced people um, illegally who had previously held town appointments, some for a very long time. Um, policy changes that were really unpopular, like um, the Second Amendment sanctuary law. Um, and so covering that was um, it's, it's interesting unto itself. But what came about from the reporting um, was ultimately uh, the, the Coalition for Open Government issuing a report on uh, the town's lack of transparency um, to its constituents. So that was just nice to um, feel like the reporting had an impact because in covering Burn, there's obviously a very robust group of, um, you might call them citizen journalists, um, who are, you know, discussing their own research into um, the town's functioning and discussing that amongst themselves or posting it on social media. And um, that's how I catch wind of a lot of these stories. And so the story about Chance Townsend, town's uh, co-enforcement officer being uncertified, um, came from a rumor that in this case turned out to be true. Um, and, but despite the fact that this was all sort of like, um, discovered by readers and, and residents, um, the paper still had a really important role, I think, in just kind of formalizing, um, some of the ideas and just, uh, cutting away all of the extravagances that are, um, common in rumors and, um, giving people reliable information at a time when it can be kind of hard to come by from the top down. Yes, I like that idea, and I wish you would explore it just a little more. The idea of a newspaper as a sort of touchstone in this era when there's so much that's posted on social media. And in Bern, of course, there's a very active uh, Republican website, um, and there's also many active Facebook <laughs> groups. So could you just talk a little about um, what that's like to be a journalist in the midst of that, how you see your role? Yeah, well, I mean, especially right now, um, working from home, um, people who live in the towns I cover obviously have much more facility there and are going to get information a lot faster than I can. Um, and sometimes, you know, a single thread will split into five by the time I catch wind of it, even though I'm at um, as many town meetings as I can attend and, and the like. Um, and so you can kind of have sort of an existential crisis wondering, well, as a journalist, what's my role here if I'm not digging up this information and presenting it? I mean, sometimes as a journalist, your role is to just contextualize information and curate it and help it, um, reach people in a more pure and um, reinforced kind of way so they know that they're getting uh, correct information. 
Excellent. Are there other stories, too? You've had so many, but are there others that stand out as something you think we should include in this year-end roundup? Well, in general, as I was thinking about uh, the stories, what I realized is at the beginning of the year, um, we were anticipating this big red shift in the Hilltowns, which, uh, you know, has proven in the election. Republicans have been much more energized, and, and people who are, who are registered as Democrats voting Republican. But um, by the end, you kind of get this uh, wide spectrum of boards. I mean, on either end, you have Knox and Rensselaerville, both of whom um, pass legislation very easily, not a whole lot of drama amongst town board members. In Bern, you had a four-to-one split, although now um, it's arguably three-to-two with uh, conservative Bonnie Conklin, who's endorsed by the GOP when she was elected, uh, taking Democrat Wilsey's side on some things. And then in Westerlo, where there was a 3-2 split in favor of the Republicans, it's now a 3-2 split against the Republicans because Matt Kryzak, uh, who is elected as a Republican, um, often sides with the Democrats on issues. But I just thought it was kind of interesting. That is interesting. And in Knox, I was covering it during years of turmoil. Now it's a board, I think the super uh, left Gadidas, Facilios left Gadidas calls it his slate as opposed to Republican back slate. But at any rate, uh, although they're members of different parties, they were all elected um, on his coattails or under his wing. So when they were still the remainder of Democrats from the Michael Hammond era, they too had a very sort of controversial discussion sessions and fireworks going off. But now it's calmed down since they're all kind of on the same page. Would you say that's true? Uh, yeah. 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 Well, so do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners on maybe what you think is ahead in 2021 for the Hilltowns? Um, hard to say. I think um, there's been this kind of drifting, maybe. I mean, there's a lot of turmoil in Bern with their government and then with Black Lives Matter, lots of schisms. Um, I mean, hopefully. That will be uh, people are learning their lessons, maybe um, expanding their minds, thinking about how to approach difficult situations like that. And uh, hopefully things will calm down a little and become more substantive, substantive than they're dramatic. Thank you, Noah. <laughs>